This is the Feed the Ball podcast, and I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, back from a hiatus to present episode 84 with golf designer Don Plasic. Among the many talents Tom Doak has demonstrated in his 40 years of designing and building golf courses is a great eye, not just for laying out holes and finding creative uses of land, but also for talent. Early in his career, he gave jobs to aspiring architects Gil Hans and Mike DeVries, who've gone on to do some pretty good things. Later, he hired Bruce Hepner and Jim Urbina as his associates, two of the best designers in the profession. Among the four people who for years comprised the heart of Doak's company, Renaissance Golf Design, that would be Don Plasek, Eric Iverson, Brian Slonick, and Brian Schneider, Don Plasek was the first to join in the late 1990s after working a stint with Perry Dye in Denver. As Don explains in our talk, his talent for drafting plans and blueprints was a key factor in helping Doak get many of the jobs he did during that late 1990s to 2000s time frame, especially since Doak preferred and continues to prefer to design in the field like Pete Dye rather than on paper or computer. Those technical plans have become less vital for Doak as time has worn on, but Plasek's graphic designs and illustrious hand-drawn routing maps that help tell the story of each Doak project continue to be true pieces of art. Plasek also became a valued shaper and architect on numerous projects and has his own book of clients he consults for, including Shore Acres in Chicago and Camargo in Cincinnati, two prominent Seth Rayner designs. Last year, Plasek completed, mostly, an ongoing master plan for Camargo that put the finishing touches on fairway lines and green expansion. Of particular note was the restoration of the 17th road hole green to its original size, now tipping out at over 16,000 square feet. It is something to behold, and I think one of the absolute coolest things in the world of golf. Several years ago, Plasek, Iverson, Slonik, and Schneider bought Renaissance Golf Design from Doak, though the group still works closely with Doak and each other. Plasek will explain the company's new dynamic and talk about his early years working with Dye and Doak, as well as lending his thoughts to a number of philosophical architectural issues. Don and I are both University of Colorado graduates, and you'll probably be thankful I spared you all the first 10 minutes of our talk as we discussed our enthusiasm for the buffs and Coach Prime, Deion Sanders. But the rest of the talk is well worth listening to all the way through. Don is a self-described optimist, and his positive outlook and easy ability to convey meaning and information made spending time with him utterly enjoyable for me. I know you'll feel the same. Here's me and Don Plasek. live in interesting times. I can't imagine trying to manage a roster of college athletes and getting them to, you know, behave and play and perform in a way that you you win when the when the level of competition everywhere you go is just so high anymore. Um it's 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 never it's never dull, that's for sure. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, college football, college athletics is at a um an inflection point, just like we are in, in many phases of society and the world, there seems to be like a, a, a pre and a post moment going on where uh, things are changing so fast, whether we just mentioned, you know, our political climate, uh, college athletics, that uh, there's just an, uh, everybody, everything's adjusting on the fly and there, there are new normals. So it's impossible to make any, any predictions. And 
But speaking of speaking of um, taking a product and and turning it around, maybe that's a good place to jump into to talking about golf. Uh, you joined sure. Renaissance in I believe 1997, and you know at, at that point, you know Tom had had some some courses and and some modest success. I I don't know that even he would say he'd had a you know, uh, his, he'd reached his potential about what he was capable of building on a good site. So that was still, you know, the, the late nineties were a bit of a, a transition and I'm sure he was looking to, to jumpstart things when he hired you. What was the environment like at, at Renaissance when you joined? That's a great question, Derek. It, you know, for me personally, I was so young. It was, it was just really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, everything, you know, Tom's style, his approach to, you know, running the company and things was always pretty Spartan. You know, he focused on the things that were important and 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 didn't um, overthink the things that weren't. And so, you know, the, the first couple of months I spent working with him, you know, I was working on a grading plan for Lost Dunes Golf Club. Um, in the apartment during the day while we were at beach tree, you know, he was building that golf course and I just, it it was, it was my dream to actually be involved in the process. And I was just over the moon for the opportunity. And, but it was, it was, you know, it was really a, a, a collegiate collaborative feeling, uh, vibe and it, and it, he managed to keep it that way, I think, too, which is a reason why, you know, the work that gets realized in the field has such a high level of of art, if you will, is, you know, he it was he always kept it a fluid process and was always thinking about things and, you know, not afraid to zig when other people were zagging. And he's, you know, he's still very much that way. Um, and it but it was it was just, it was really exciting. I had come from Perry Dye's office in Denver, Colorado, and Tom had just, you know, within months prior to me starting there, had sort of embarked on, on his own. And I had, I'd read the anatomy book and, and Derek, I don't, to this day, I don't read as much as I should, but that's one of a handful of books I read cover to cover. And I just thought, wow, um, you know, cause I think his interest in architecture was, it stemmed from the Dye family and Pete, uh, particularly and to some extent Perry. And it was kind of the same way for me. I grew up in Denver and, you know, the greatest golf course in Denver was Cherry Hills country club, but, and it, it you know, arguably it still is. There's a lot of great golf now with what Gordon Crenshaw built at Colorado golf club and things. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and so, you know, I, I grew up caddying at the tournament players club at Plum Creek in Castle Rock, just South of Denver. And that was where I got, that's the first time I met Pete, first time I met Perry, um, and got to really know the golf course well, caddying and, you know, working in the bag room and stuff there. And it just, it was just so different from everything I was aware of. And that differentness was a driver. Um, and so, but, but Tom really, you know, over the years has always encouraged looking at what's going on, paying attention and analyzing it and going to see stuff 
when you were building a course, when you were working on a project, you know, go see other things too. see what they're doing, see what's been done. Cause uh, you know, he, his analysis of golf and course architecture in particular is more extensive than, you know, arguably anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and he always did that. And, and anytime you go look at a golf course, you don't even have to love it, but there, if you really look at it with an open mind, there's probably something there, the way the holes are sequenced or how they're, uh, the cadence of the holes, their proximity to each other, you know, how do you clever things happen, you know, from really high level thinking. And they also happen from completely random natural circumstance. And they're, you know, the value of that is equal. So, um, it, he, he continues to, and, and I try to follow that lesson to just try and think differently as often as you can. It's really easy. doesn't matter what you're doing to sort of fall in a rut. And if you have some success, it's easy to stay in that rut. And Tom, Tom avoids ruts like nobody's business. <laughs> what, what were you doing for, uh, for Perry Dye? Um, you know, it strikes me that there's a, you know, t- Tom is kind of, you know, Tom worked for, for Pete and uh, Perry is Pete's son and uh, Jim Urbina worked for Perry and, and Tom mm-hmm. hired him and Al, um, uh, Eric Iverson worked for Perry. You worked for Perry. So there's there's a lot of DNA uh, from the Dye family and even Perry Dye uh, in Renaissance golf. And yet my impression is that the, the type of golf course that Perry Dye built, his clients were not the same clients that that tom has had or had at that point and the products were quite different so there's i'm trying to mesh the two sides of it together so what were you doing with with perry and what was it that made you an attractive person to tom Uh, that's a great question as well i you know working for perry i was not on site much uh, I was in on the design floor at the office in Denver and really working on details and plans and routing plans and color rendering things. And, and you know, Perry's approach, by and large, his clients really wanted everything that, that had the dyes had really sort of put into the mainstream that, you know, the island green, the long, uh, we would call it the design line, that soft strategic angle left to right or right to left that was bulkheaded with railroad ties and either, you know, a natural hazard or sand or, and by and large, it was water. And so the clients that, that really, you know, presented to Perry wanted all of that. So, you know, it was really interesting because we, we sort of had a, a a template um, literally and figuratively that we were working from with golf holes and sequencing them in a way that made sense from a construction standpoint on sites that sometimes just didn't lend themselves to golf. Um, so, you know, steeper, you know, not certainly not uh, seaside or sandy sites and trying to figure out how do you deliver that kind of design style. And it was, you know, it was exciting for me because even that was so different from anything I was aware of. So you really felt like you were, you were architecting. You really felt like you were designing because you had to be so deliberate with what you were sorting out and then putting it in a plan set that you could hand to a contractor halfway around the world. And they would, you know, they would not veer from that. So you really had to, you felt this 
responsibility to really get the idea and and know that whoever was building it was not likely to veer from it very much. Um, and so, you know, I, I was doing a lot of that, which I enjoyed and I still really, truly enjoy it. You know, the seeing golf realized in a field, Derek is, is very, very exciting. Um, but I've always just had this, this internal drive to draw and render and shade and shadow and sketch that I've had encouraged by my, my parents from as early as I can remember. And I still enjoy that. And it's, that's really fun for me, but I think, you know, as far as what attracted Tom to me as an employee, um, one was <laughs> I, I, at the time I was available because Eric Iverson and I were, had just gone into business together and we were in business together for several years in between working for the dies and both of us working for Tom and we were, you know, we were starving artists. Yeah. We were <laughs> trying to get work in Colorado wherever we could. And, you know, um, sleeping in the motel six in Lamar, Colorado, because we had been commissioned to rebuild a half a dozen bunkers in late November in Eastern Colorado, you know, mm. but the, the drive <laughs> was there. Uh, and maybe that's part of what led Tom you know, to, to having an interest in us is that if you're doing that, you must either you're crazy or you really want to do it. Um, and maybe we were a little of both. I, I, I don't know how crazy we were, but I know we really wanted to do it. Eric and I did. And I, the, the, the first time I spent time on a con, real time on a construction site was in Japan with Eric. He was building a course for Perry um, in Moshko outside of Osaka and I spent the better part of two months there with Eric, you know, in a culture I didn't understand and a language I couldn't speak. And, uh, you know, Eric really fostered that and that opportunity was granted by Perry. So, you know, willingness to travel and go where the work is and then, you know, letting the work be the motivation as a part, you know, probably a bigger part than the process. But to 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 maybe answer that question about what Tom, I think. You know, as Tom developed and really got into projects, you know, until he developed his reputation, Derek, where he didn't have to show everything on paper. I mean, it's amazing now the golf courses that that he's designed and built and the paper trail of, of you know, drawings and plans that exist for some of the best courses on the planet or to say they're limited is almost an overstatement. I mean, some of it's just still a stick routing on a, on a very simple map. And, but the clients understand his process well enough and he's done it well enough, long enough that he doesn't have to coach them up and, you know, constantly reassure them that we're not sure what we're doing exactly, but it's going to be really good because we're working really hard on it. And I, but I do think the thing that attracted, um, I, it'd be interesting to see what Tom said on the same question, but you know, there was a, there was a perceived need. He was still needing to draw plans, grading plans and do earthwork calculations and things like that in order to get approvals and to, you know, to get a golf course built. And, you know, I was young and reasonably capable. Uh, I, I like to think, and, but still learning clearly. And, and I would sometimes draw, what this or that hole might look like to help secure, you know, either make a current client a little more comfortable or help to, to get a client too. And, uh, 
so I, I did some of that. I did some of that in, in Perry's office too. And, and that was easier because that style of architecture is just so deliberate. You can, you know, railroad ties and, and vertical bulk heading and pot bunkers and things that are typically associated with, with Pete and Perry's work were easy to sort of conjure, but Tom's were, wasn't about that at all. It was making it look like that golf hole had been there a long time. And I, I enjoyed that challenge very much of trying to graphically explain what things might look like. Um, and Tom gave me that opportunity too. And I, to this day, I enjoy doing that, uh, even though the need seems to be less for that in the work that Tom does. But clients do enjoy having a version of their golf course in, you know, maybe as it was originally conceived, but also what it looks like, what it looks like now um, as well. So, you know, and, and Tom really doesn't have that need for that kind of thing anymore quite so much because his work speaks for itself and his, so does his process. Well, that it certainly still has value though. And I'll, I'll touch back on that in a minute, but it, it does sound an, like another reason that he was able to get you and Eric is because you were cheap at the time. <laughs> I'm sure that he, he, we, he noticed we were. that you, you were available. <laughs> yeah. We, the, the, you know, any work, the price was right for us. That's yeah. for sure. You know, when, when, when Eric and I used to talk about, you know, the difference between zero projects and one is so much greater than one. Um, and you know, it gets incrementally reduced when you go from one to two and two to three and things like that. But, um, I remember those early days, you know, with, with Eric just doing everything on a shoestring and just glad to have the opportunity. And we, I can remember him saying, uh, many times, you know, it, we don't have to, we don't have to be a huge success. I just want to be able to put cheese on my cheeseburger if I want and not worry about just getting the hamburger because it costs less, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I don't think we've ever lost that perspective. And I know Eric hasn't, and but it's continued to serve us really well. And, um, and I think Tom has that approach too, you know? He's fought that battle for as long as I can remember, Derek, you know, just spending money unnecessarily only validates that you have to spend a lot of money to build a good golf course, you know, and we kind of invented that in the United States, I think, to a degree. I mean, it's coming around and Tom's been a big part of that, but you know, most people think if it's expensive, it's good. And, and it's not just golf. I, I think, you know, most people assume that if you spend a lot of money, it must've been for a really good reason. Um, and uh, Tom's proven you can build exceptional golf by comparison without spending a great deal of money and maybe even more from the perspective, just don't spend what you don't have to or, or you know, where it's unnecessary or it's, you know, the return on that investment just really isn't warranted because it, it doesn't make the golf experience less good. And by and large, spending less makes the golf experience better. Um, yeah, just, you know, the, the fewer inputs you have, the more natural it is. And, you know, and that's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that spending less actually makes it better. And, and, uh, yeah, I think and, that's yeah. one of the most important things that, that Tom and, and Bill Coor introduced 
into mm. the world world of golf architecture and this this goes back into the you know the the late 90s and early 2000s was that less can be more instead mm-hmm. of breaking this this paradigm of what you just explained is, is just throwing money at a golf course and people bragging about how much a golf course costs to build, you know, where that became sort of a sense of status. And, and then there was a good period of time when the trend, I think the trend line started to go down and, and more uh, builders, more architects, more developers, more owners, more clubs even kind of embraced that less is more philosophy and, and tried to see how much good golf you could get out of a smaller budget. But right. I, I'd be curious to get your take on this. I sense it moving back the other direction now. These last few years have been such a boom time for golf. It just seems that there's so much money in the game that mm. clubs want to spend it. I'm sure developers want to spend it. There's there's really this this almost maximalist view of golf course design and, and redesign at the moment. And it's a shame to me that that those lessons that that Tom and and Bill and others introduced are so quickly being cast aside. You know, we're picking right right back up where we left off uh, back in the you know in the boom days and not really taking lessons to heart. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I sense that in the air. I I agree, and you know it it, it is funny, Derek. I hope that that uh, phone call didn't interrupt there. I heard it on my end. Hopefully you didn't hear it. It was a, a ringing, but I, I really got the gist of your, of your question. And I think, you know, we've, we've kind of got a captive audience right now. Um, people that, in, you know, for better or for worse for us, it's definitely better, but I think COVID was a catalyst and people that used to play or maybe give coming back people that had never played or given it a try. And then there's all the rest of us. And so, you know, we've 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 got an opportunity as a profession you know to to show people that our craft can be realized in a in a way that can be fun and and at the end of the day without wearing out the word sustainable um and but i you know i i think in this country i think that's just the way things ebb and flow you know when 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 you can do more we just do and when you can't particularly if you're forced not to, then then maybe you'll do less, even if that's the right thing to do anyway. Um, and I, I think golf is no exception. I, you know, I, I hope that that the sort of the foundation in how you approach achieving good golf from a native, you know, site from scratch can be done. Um but I, I don't know that we can help ourselves. I, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I think the driver for that, Derek, is probably, you know, from where we stand, how savvy are the people that have the resources to build new golf and, and what's important to them? Because, and, you know, and they're reacting to, you know, if they're, if they're savvy and well-versed in what we've been talking about with less can be more and often is, more in many ways then and those are the projects that get the attention then i think it's got a better chance of of sort of you know keeping things in good order but you know people get the the variety of ways that people get to the point where they want to design and build a brand new golf course is as varied as the game itself and those folks that you know, think golf is cool or, and that's great uh, because it is, 
But, you know, I think those have the means to really develop 18 holes from scratch just by virtue of the fact that building a golf course from scratch is inherently not a probably not a good investment. You wouldn't have very many people advising you spending that kind of money to collect it, especially in the public forum at 50 or 75 bucks a head, you know, slowly over time. That model only works for, for municipalities, but and they'll they'll probably keep following it. But I think, you know, the the single owner or the small group of of men or women that have had success monetarily in their life and have discovered that this is something they want to do. It it really depends on what they think, because, you know, if they think spending more is going to attract, you know, a bigger, more sustainable market of whether it's new members or even if it, you know, if we're lucky that they're doing something that's accessible to, to the public player that, you know, you make it, make it available to them. It's really going to be a driver. Um, And, and so I guess my hope is that, you know, the folks that have the means that are not a municipality will have watched and, and maybe experienced themselves enough of, you know, um, what a Pacific dunes or uh, a common ground in, in Colorado can really deliver without spending a lot of money. I, I think, you know, one of the most savvy owners we've ever worked with did a really good job of keeping those facts close to the vest because no one polices it really. And you can say you spent three times as much as you did on a golf course. And maybe you didn't, you know, I don't know, but but if you think that's going to get more customers through the door that you spent more, um, you know, even if you don't say it yourself, it's just sort of perceived or someone else does. You're probably not going to get in the way of that to to make sure everyone knows knows the facts. So um, it, it, we live in interesting times. Like I can't tell you how many times I've said that to people uh, in the last several months, not just about golf, but you know, the whole entire planet um, yeah. and, and golf's a big piece of that. That's, but I, I, I do hope I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the decision makers are in a position to continue to demonstrate um, doing things that way, because it, it, you know, even if you spent a lot of money, Derek, building a golf course, if you did, the chances are very good that you're now going to have to con- continue spending a lot of money to take care of it. Um, and people kind of, you know, they kind of forget that. Um, and that's where a project can be successful is if you've got a great product, but you don't have to spend an inordinate amount of money um, taking care of it because, you know, that's when the ones that stick around and figured that out and, you know, golf's better as a result. There's, it's so easy to justify spending more money. There are so many more options, add-ons, slices mm-hmm. of cheese to add on to the product. You know, I would just mm-hmm. had a course that is installing the hydronics system under all their greens. And perfect example. Yeah, and and that's a three to four million dollar add-on to the renovation that they're doing, and they can afford it. I don't, I don't doubt that, and right. it gives. 
And you justify it by saying, well, it gives our maintenance staff the ability to control the root temperature of the greens. And then they have bent grass greens in, in this southern kind of transition climate. So it says, well, our bent grass will play better in the summer and our membership will be happy. So you can justify all of these add-ons where, you know, there was a period in time when that technology didn't exist. Uh, right. And so that wasn't an option. And there just, there doesn't, I don't see, I guess I'm more pessimistic than you are. I, I don't see, I don't perceive, at least in my travels and, and discussions, uh, a lot of awareness or a lot of desire to stay on budget or to go under budget or to do less rather than more. I, I just said, I just noticed that there's just a lot of huge blowups and a lot of huge investment in, in irrigation and, and these, uh, all of these, these neat tricks that will certainly have an impact on the playability and, and functionality of the golf course, but it'll probably lead to, to higher costs down the line and it's higher upfront cost. And it's just, and it becomes an arms race. It becomes a, a situation where, you know, it inspires other other clubs and owners to continue to spend more money. Now, and, and and again, whatever it's 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 their money; they have it. But it just, it, it, I guess, I just keep going back to we were we were in a period where, out of maybe necessity, and uh, the economic situation in the in golf was such that you couldn't afford to spend the amounts of monies that are being that were spent before and are spent now so it was by necessity but you know it's a little discouraging that that so much so much of the industry is jumping right back into the stream when they had a chance to take the take the off ramp to to mix metaphors really great points there derek and i you know you mentioned irrigation and i think you know just more control and and you know the idea that if you have all the bells and whistles you can fine tune everything and keep it there longer you know, that's sort of, uh, that's the same, you know, when, when we buy golf equipment, you know, you can hit it farther and straighter and farther and straighter. And if there's any inkling of, of potential there, yeah. we jump all over that and we don't care what it costs almost, you know, because we so desperately want to hit it farther and straighter and hit more greens and, you know, drive yeah. it farther. Yeah. But or your you know, buddy you just go got, back, got the new driver, so you can't there, keep playing the same one from three years ago. No, that's that right. I mean, you're, you know, either you're giving up that advantage or you're the perception is that you are. And as long as you have, you know, one of those in your head, then the, the, the wheel continues to spin. But I, I, you know, when you mentioned irrigation, I think irrigation, when it was first introduced, kind of the same thing. Um, the idea that, you know, I can remember, I can't remember the club per se, but I can remember a club from the UK calling Tom talking about, you know, would you be interested in consulting with us? Because, you know, one of the things we want to do is in, is introduce irrigation to the golf course in, in the UK that it had been, you know, naturally irrigated when it was dry, it was dry. And when it was soggy, it was soggy. And, you know, you got what you got and people learned to play in those conditions. But I, I remember that conversation and just the idea of of Tom, who just thinks so deeply about these kinds of things, saying, you know, I don't know if if you want irrigation. I don't know if that's necessarily good. And then the response from the club was, and I'm paraphrasing, well, we're only going to use it when we need it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that sounds good, but if you spent what you need to spend to put in 18 holes of irrigation in the ground that, you know, you didn't have anything to start with, you're going to be really hard pressed to define what need 
and only when you need it looks like. I mean, you're if, if you have a brown spot somewhere and, and someone thinks it's the wrong place, you're turning the water on because yeah. that's that's why it's there. Whereas you didn't have that option before. Um, yeah, I'm and, only going to eat these this bag of chips when I'm really hungry. When you're really hungry, right? Not when I'm just eating because I'm bored. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's that's very well put. That's very well put. And I think, you know, it just, I don't know if it's in our DNA, Derek, to, to, to be able to show that kind of thoughtful restraint where just because you can, you should. But it's, you know, that's far more reaching than golf. But it's in golf, too. You know, I had um, a talk with the writer Michael Crowley, who I think you guys know, uh, the other day yeah. about Tom. And just on this topic, he, you know, he asked me what I thought, you know, just about Tom's career and, and, and his, his place in, in the profession. And mm-hmm. I always go back to, I, I know long before Tom was getting great jobs, um, back in the early 80s when he was, he was exploring golf courses in the, in the UK and mm-hmm. writing about it he kind of hit on something that I, I think at the time, I don't know that anybody else in the profession really cared about or was thinking about. And that was just the simplicity of, of what golf can be at its best after observing all these, uh, these courses, these links courses, and just seeing how little they had and how little they needed to be dynamic and flexible and, and yeah, provide just kind of like head spinning whirlwind experience. And he took that, and he was, I think, the the first one to really take that idea and and try to carry it into the art of designing golf courses in the modern times. And mm-hmm. it, though other, you know, maybe you could say that that Bill and Ben got there first with a, a big, like mind blowing prod, you know, project like Sandhills, where they kind of took that idea and, and implemented it on a big scale that got noticed. Mm-hmm. But Tom was on that that theme, and 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 he, I. I think he still thinks that way. Just to your point about that is, is that that never left him. He, despite having the opportunity to build golf courses around the world on different sites and some having to be highly engineered, that that's just in, ingrained in him. And I find that, I find that, that, that very uh, admirable and, and instructive that, you know, throughout everything that's happened over the last 40 years in golf design and everything that's happened to him and, and, and you and your company, that, that, that is still a belief that everyone in your firm holds dear is to just try to do as, as only as much as, as needed. And, um, I just think it continues to this day to be, you know, a beacon, even though we're so much of the profession is sliding the opposite direction. Yeah. I, it's a well said. And I, I think, you know, it, it's kind of the Hippocratic oath of sorts to the craft is to first yeah. do no harm. And, you know, what's really interesting about that is if, if that's your your ethos and you really you really hold on to it, that forces you, Derek, to look for things on a site that might on first glance be pretty benign, but that offers things that if if you're really subscribed to that really makes you try and figure out clever ways to use something that on first glance might be borderline insignificant whether it's a shouldering contour or a, a patch of really interesting vegetation or a consistent slope or, you know, all of those things that you really try and maximize when you're trying to do less instead of more. And the beauty of that, that is by taking that approach at the beginning, you actually are creating the possibility that you're creating something unique because 
by virtue of every site, you know, every piece of property is unique. And if, if you can maximize what's unique about it, even if it's subtle, you can then make that golf course different in its own way and, you know, put it in more of the finest of its kind category just by virtue of the fact that it, it has things that no other site has. And, but you have to, you have to be kind of clever with that and you have to be okay with maybe fewer bunkers, um, you know, just disturbing the ground less, only working on contours that really are going to be, you know, serve to a, a collective strategy. And I, you know, and, and you're right about that. Tom has never relinquished that. And I think, you know, it, it's in his DNA, but it's also because he's seen so many examples of what that looks like in places where, you know, the fairway has got, six different kinds of turf and you know some of them some of them might even be considered weedy to to the untrained eye but if it's a great playing surface then whatever that is in its own unique way in that locale is fine don't monkey with that just just let it be and you know because the more you do during construction the more you have to do after construction um but it, you know, it, it really serves well because at the end of the day, you, you know, Tom's, Tom's done a great job of trying to stay ahead of whatever the curve is. And, you know, when people are thinking big, wide fairways and long golf courses, Tom's thinking really short, yeah. you know, two and a half par two and a halves or two and three quarters and par three and a halves and three and three quarters. And, you know, he's, he's happy to try and demonstrate what that looks like um in contrast to whatever the norm or whatever seems to be more popular or getting more attention right now and and you know that could be one of the ways tom has contributed to the craft of golf course architecture maybe more than 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 anyone or at least maybe since pete where he took what he saw in the uk and brought it back here and and you know changed what design actually is and i think you know what you compete with not just in golf derek is the idea that design means you changed you you got a blank canvas and you changed the canvas to make it more conducive to an interesting and fun and memorable golf course and the idea that you have to change it to a certain degree otherwise you're not really designing anything you know it, it's i think that's a perception that people are discovering over time as golf architecture becomes a more slightly more mainstream topic that the really good stuff is figuring out how to make it good without moving all the furniture in the room. Um, just walking into the room and leaving largely everything where it is and figuring out the, the feng shui of strategic and interesting and fun mm. golf architecture without moving it all around just because you feel you like can. you have to. yeah yeah you can or that you need to in order to to demonstrate to your client that you're designing something and not just you know mailing it in without trying very hard um but i, I think you know that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the you know the folks that are in a position to develop new golf courses how savvy are they with with that kind of stuff um, and you know, it, it, it's probably 
I'm optimistic by nature. So I'm hoping that most of the people that, you know, have the means and the, and, and such to do those kinds of any kind of golf project, start with some of that. And hopefully we'll at least get the ones that do, even if they're fewer and farther between. Yeah. It seems like that's one of the big differentiators is that the clients that, that you and and your company and Tom has worked with do seem to, I mean, I think that's why they are attracted to you because they already are on that same page or, or that's what they, that's what appeals uh, to them about what, about Tom's work is that they, they embrace that, that whole ethos that, that you've been describing. Um, so there's almost like a pre-selection that's happened. They don't, although you could speak to this cause you know, you speak to a lot more potential clients than, than, you know, than I would know, but, I'm imagining that that the, the high percentage of the, the calls that you field are from from people that they want that they want that um, that less is more that that kind of hands off uh, nuanced approach to let the land speak for itself versus another client who maybe didn't do their homework and just knows that Tom Doak is a really well known architect and says I've got this you know land and 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 a, and a, and a eighteen million dollar budget for you how's what do you think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, that's spot on. And, you know, over time, early on, not so much, but over the years, the ability to gracefully, you know, because you can tell pretty quickly what kind of potential client you're speaking to on, you know, what courses they like, what, you know, what courses of Renaissance golf have you seen and played and, you know, what is it, a, what is it about them? Um, but, you know, it, it's a luxurious position to find yourself in. Because if you can discern and, and, and we feel like we can pretty quickly that, you know, if, if they're looking, if they're talking to six architects, they're probably not built for us. You know, the recipe for success is going to be tougher to pull off. Um, and, and you're right, Derek, you, you're spot on in that they do, you know, they're calling us because they want what we do well, which is not unlike the clients that were reaching out to, to Perry when I was working for him, they, they wanted, you know, what, what he does well. Um, and we provided that. So, but it is a luxury to be able to say, thank you, but no, thank you. Right. And, and not everyone has that. And, you know, it, it takes a long time to build a reputation to where you can say, say no, thank you. Um, and, you know, and Tom's done that with his, resume and the way he goes about things. But what's really, really interesting often is that as soon as you say no, thank you, they just seem to want you more. Um, and that's, it's you know, it's a, happy, works, right? it's a happy problem. Yeah. But, you know, you'd have to be pretty gutsy to say no, thank you early on thinking you would attract a client at a, you know, at a more aggressive clip when you didn't have any work to fall back on. So, you <laughs> yeah. know, I, I like to think, Derek, that I try really hard to be uh, grateful and look around and be appreciative. And I think, you know, that's instilled in, in, you know, from Tom all the way down to Eric Iverson and Brian Schneider and Brian Slonick, you know, my colleagues who are really more my, my um, uh, not co-owners, but just really friends in golf and salt of the earth guys that are really, really focused on being good human beings first. And then, you know, everything else kind of happens after that. And that, boy, if you can't be 
if you can't be grateful for that, uh, you, you need, you need a good talking to. And, and, but that, that's a part of the reason I think why the work is good is because we care about each other and, uh, and, you know, that building a golf course isn't easy. Building a really good one is really not easy. Um, and you know, when you're working with the right people, um, that helps a lot. I, you know, all the cliches apply. I think one of the biggest ones in this context is, you know, when you're thinking about bringing on a client, you know, it's the, it's the money. They need the money. They need the land. And then you think about the people you're working with. And at the end of the day, it's really about the people, the people and the people and the people are good. Everything else sort of can tend to fall in line and you can still end up with something good. Even if the land doesn't have oceans of, of uh, attributes going for it. And, you know, those are the kinds of things you learn over decades that have nothing to do with a strategic or penal or heroic school of architecture. Right. I'd like to come, we'll come back to um, what's going on with Renaissance golf design in a, in a little bit, but um, after all the time that you've been doing this and, and seen what you've seen and, and gone to the places and observed Tom and observe the, your, your colleagues, do you have a grasp on what golfers like? I mean, it's kind of a, it's a, you know, you just, cause you mentioned, you know, like penal versus strategic, blah, blah, blah. But there, is there something, do you, do you know any more than you used to know or have you ever known like what golfers actually like? That's a really cool question. And I think, you know, at the core, it's having fun and, and fun is, you know, it's different for everybody. It, it's, it's interesting and different and varied and new, um, hopefully, but you know, it, over the years, it's really interesting because I think you have to drill down past everyone's outer shell because we're human and and we like stability and predictability. And, and what I'm getting at, Derek, I think is, you know, if you're consulting at a private club, for example, uh, where people play that golf course over and over and over and over, they, at the beginning and until you can crack the code with them a little bit, really like that the the par three seventh on their golf course, they hit seven iron there every time. They don't look at where the P's are. They don't look at where the flags are, they, you know, and they don't care about the wind or the, or any of that. They just know they hit their seven iron on that par three and they, they pull the club and they go hit the shot and they don't, don't think twice about it. And part of that is their attitude. And then of course, part of it is obviously course setup, but what I'm really trying to convey is, you know, inherently we like that familiarity and it makes us comfortable. And if you're comfortable standing over the ball, hitting a golf shot that, as you well know, that's good. But I think deep down, if we really open the doors and windows and, and talk about it, people don't want the same thing over and over and over again, even though they think they do. And if you can introduce wide variety and more strategy and just inherently more interest, the golf hole becomes fun. And remembering that yesterday I hit four iron on that par three and today I can hit seven because the wind's different and the tee's different and the hole's in a different spot. And, you know, missing this side or that side is got enough of an influence that it's really affecting your club selection. At the end of the day, I think people would be lying to you if they said, I, I liked it better 
when I just hit the seven iron all the time. Um, there may be some, but I think deep down, we all like that variety. And if you have variety, you know, the variety is a key ingredient to fun and we just all want to have fun out there. When I was thinking about that question, I, I, I thought there were two different ways you could look at it. And one is, have we ever, have we figured out what golfers like, or is the better question, have we figured out what they want? And you kind mm. of answered that one is you know, the, the, the positive way to say is, you know, golfers, uh, know what they like, um, but maybe don't know what they want. And the cynical way is, you know, they, they, you, they think they know what they want, but they don't know what they like. And, and you're kind right. of touch, touching on, on that, that as yeah. well is that, mm-hmm. um, but that must, that must, when you're designing golf courses and, and taking that into consideration, that must be something there's, there must be some kind of, you know, a, a push pull there, or that's an open-ended question that I'm sure demands a lot of uh, discussion, uh, in, you know, in the field about how are we going to do this? It's going to be a little, make people uncomfortable perhaps, mm-hmm. but we're going to play the long game and assume that they're going to come around to it. Right. Right. Good point there. And I, you know, it's, it, I'm utterly fascinated to this day of, how concerned, you know, apart from what we just chatted about, how concerned um, in, again, in a, in a members or private club situation, how concerned they're, they are members are that have never broken 90 are really worried about a good player, maybe a visiting, you know, assistant professional shooting a low number on their golf course. And, you know, and and that's more important to them than them having fun on their own golf course. And I, you know, it, 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 I understand it, but I, it's just really frustrating to think that they're, they're okay with that. And, you know, because the way to, you know, the most important thing is a good player is challenged here. It's hard for them. Well, if it's hard for an accomplished player of which there are very few by comparison to the rest of us, it's going to be really hard for you. And by and large, it's for the wrong reasons, you know, skinny fairways, tree line fairways. You know, if you miss it on a tree line fairway, it doesn't take any imagination to pitch it out from behind the tree back into the fairway and then try and keep it in the fairway on your ensuing shot. That That's not fun. I, it, it, it's just not. Um, so, you know, you, you part of, identifying a consulting client or a client in general is, you know, seeing if they're on the same, the same kind of page, because there are ways to make it tougher for a good player without making it impossible for the rest of us. And, you know, we've, we've looked at that really hard, but it's just, it, it's just amazing to me that players would rather just struggle on their own golf course because that's what makes it hard for a better player who may not be a member or who may have only played there once or or maybe they're part of their their staff you know they're more worried about if the course is hard for their the people they're employing than it is enjoyable for them and i i i find that fascinating and when you explain it that way by and large people will will kind of you know take a step back and think about that and then it you know it starts to resonate a little bit Um, but you know, we all need room to play golf and, you know, a ball in pocket or being out of the hole early off the tee, you know, I don't care how much you love the game. You can't tell me that, you know, that's okay because the golf course is tough for your uncle. Who's a, you know, a scratch golfer. I just don't buy it. Yeah. 
It's it's exactly right, in my opinion. And, you know, this may have more to do with, obviously, it has more to do with um, when you're consulting. And we could have this, there's a whole nother conversation to be had about uh, the evolving club member and, and generation uh, transfer of ideologies. But do you find at all that that mentality is changing as, as clubs are getting younger and, and a new type of member is joining and ascending into committees that 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 notion of you know difficulty equals good in in a golf course uh which which you know pervaded the 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 game for for decades and i get a lot of people telling me that golf digest was to blame for some of that and maybe that's somewhat true but also the pga tour and the influence of professional golf and uh what you know there are a lot of reasons for that uh but that was definitely a mentality is that, you know, if your golf course is tough and hard, it's good. And if it's easy, mm -hmm. it's not good. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so my, but do you find that mentality is being weeded out just naturally, or does that tend to just creep back into people once they, once they're spending a lot of money on, uh, on their club and they're on committees and, you know, they're, they're very proud in their product and they, they just continue to get to that place where they think, they think their golf course shouldn't be too easy. Right. I, you know, you're, you're right. And it's, a, it's the same kind of struggle, I think, um, with, you know, spending money you don't need to spend. And, and, you know, initially it, it all, one of the perfect examples of that, it, when you talk about hard and easy, Derek, it's just the idea of expanding the putting green um, out to its original landform and removing trees and, you know, things that to, to a, third party observer who loves their golf course because it's hard for the reasons they think are important. Um, you know, you, you talk about bigger greens and taking out trees and widening the fairways and they're just scared to death. Oh my God, it's, you're going to make this place too easy. And, you know, until you get into, you know, where you can relocate the hole out to the edge of, of some kind of a precipice, for example, um, on a bigger green and, you know, a club I've worked at for years in Chicago, we actually did the math after we expanded many greens on the golf course back to their original sizes to where you could, you could get the, um, the whole location to where a good player could short side themselves. And, you know, we statistics are what they are and you can pick your, your, uh, analysis approach, but, the the data really was compelling in that the golf course got a little harder for the single digit handicappers because they weren't able to access the flags as much. And they were, you know, their birdie putts were longer. If you can add an aggregate of 25 or 30 feet to a good player's birdie putts in the course of a round, they're, they're just not going to make as many. It's mm. just that simple. And, but, you know, to, to the rest of us, um, you know, having a bigger cream that's a bigger target and not being in the rough or behind a tree on your third shot on a par four, it, it just, it, that's okay. And, and those people, their handicaps actually went down and it's, you know, it's, it's a gift to give someone, um, even though they may not realize it, which is still fascinating, the opportunity to break 90 for the first time in their life or a hundred on a golf course they've been playing for years that they love um, or God forbid, you know, they've never broken 80 and they do that. You know, I mean, it, it 
that's okay. It's okay for those people to play a little bit better. And those kinds of things just happen almost by default, Derek, when you, when you do those kinds of things and all the old courses that we get to work at, you know, the ones that have had the opportunity to plant more trees and, and have been around a long time, greens shrink just because that's what they do. They don't get bigger. They get smaller over, over years and years of maintenance. And, you know, to, to give that back to them and just help them feel, look, look, ladies and, and gents, we're not trying to make the golf course easier or harder. We're just trying to make it more interesting and, and largely more fun and more varied for more people because it's your, your course. And we think you want that. And it, you know, and if, and if they don't like that approach, Derek, then it's pretty clear that we're not the right consulting architect for them. And we, like we said earlier, it's a luxury to be able to say, I just don't think it's a good fit. Um, you're probably better off finding someone else that subscribes to, you know, what, how important hard is and what that looks like than us. And then we move on and, and, and we're in a lovely spot that, that we have, we can say that and not be, you know, sacrificing work that we need. You mentioned the, the club in Chicago. I'm assuming it might be Shore Acres, but correct me if I'm wrong, but one club that you definitely did that, uh, did this with was Camargo in Cincinnati. I was there a couple of weeks ago and um, mm-hmm. the green expansions throughout the course are remarkable. And, and, and it, it just, it, a, it's really just fulfilling like the, the, the potential and the original concept of the course, it, you know, the greens were that size <laughs> designed to be that size for that, mm-hmm. for that prop particular property and the way that those holes are designed. And it does provide an infinite, number of more pin placements and interesting pin placements but the the one that that blew me was a, the one that you completed last year the 17th hole the road hole the expansion on that um mm-hmm. was just remarkable the, the the back section was expanded something like what five or six thousand feet which is the size of a normal golf green on a on a golf course and that's just a third of the green of that entire green size one of the, the best road holes or the, just for that green complex that i'm familiar with um that must have been a real treat just on a personal level to be able to bring something like that back to life it, it really was derek and i appreciate the kind words it was it was kind of a long time coming i mean we we started i my personal visit first one was over 20 years ago uh, with Tom when they were expanding the greens largely out to the original plateau edges. And, and you know, it's debatable on, on why so much was changed with that road hole green on 17, but it was, it was never a high enough priority until everything else really was completed and bunkers restored and trees removed. And Doug Norwell, the superintendent there, has done just a, a – completely bang up job on, on all of those things and is constantly thinking about those details. And, and so, you know, and, and he was there 20 years ago when we restored the bunkers back to their original from, uh, 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 Mr. Von Hage's yep. modern, modern, modernization, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's been really fun because I, you know, I think over time, I think Tom even wrote a note several years ago to the effect of, look, you guys, you, you're, you're most of the way there for you not to put 17 back the way it was would just, you know, you really ought to do that. And I, I think that might've been, you know, the, the little fire underneath that, that 
burned hot enough and long enough to get to do it. Um, the other advantage we had was that the original was just so well documented. I mean, the aerial photographs and, and, and data that we could dive into to see what was really there existed. So there wasn't a tremendous amount of decision-making. And what's really fun about it is I think, um, you know, Camargo's only got two, three shot holes. Um, and they're both, you know, for modern and particularly accomplished modern players, they're just long par fours. They, they just are. And so to, you know, to do something on a hole like 17, that's essentially straight away, um, which is a huge advantage for people that hit it long over those of us that don't, you know, to really have them thinking about all the way back to the T where they wanted to be off the T because of how they were going to be able to attack the hole on their second shot. You know, for the rest of us, it's our fourth shot. That's the scariest on that hole, not our second. Um, But, you know, they, they're still dealing with the same, influence if you will by what you know missing left or or finding your way into the greenside bunker or beyond the green is now a real mm-hmm. uh interesting test again because we brought back that bunker and then um you know the the nuance of of what's going on not just with the putting surface but everything around it now without really effectively adding a single yard to the hole has made it much more of a three-shot hole for fear of what happens if you get yourself out of position in two shots, particularly for good players. And, and uh, so that part's been, you know, it's been really fun and and you've seen it, uh, which is a huge advantage. I mean, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, it, wherever the flag is on the left two thirds of that putting surface, it's got your attention and the, the further left it goes, it just, you know, the pucker factor goes up higher and higher where, where whoever you are. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been really fun. It's, it's been a long time coming and I'm excited about it and I'm privileged to have been a part of the process. What it's just a remarkable piece of architecture, you know, from one through 18, um, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and if you played enough Rainers, which unfortunately, you know, mostly they're private. So most, most people listening to this don't have the opportunity to see a lot, but everyone is everyone is a treat and there's just something something special about it but camargo is is you know kind of in, in a unique class in in my mind it's just, just the size and scale uh, of those are uh, another dimension the the 11th hole the the short is one of the when you come over the 10th green and you see that for the first time it's like you know you just kind of catch your breath just the way it's just this this pedestal that just sits there and you can see way beyond it it's it's really what a what a place it really is. I, I think, you know, and so much of the progress that we've made there that's exciting to me personally is enhancing, you know, you hit it on the head talking about the scale of that place. It's it's big yeah, and it feels big. And and the elevation change, you know, the, the ravines and the relief that travel across the property make it feel big, but they feel bigger when you can see into them and beyond them. And, and you know, the only thing in contrast from that massive landscape are the, you know, the, the short 11th is a perfect example. That thing is just hovering up there in the middle of the air with the flag stick, just beckoning you and, and everything else around it is just trouble everywhere. I mean, that, get, that really gets your attention. I, you know, I do think, um, you know, the, the notes we went to that I re- have referenced many times over the years 
was, you know, that was one of Pete Dye's favorite golf courses. Right. And Tom started his career with Pete early on. Pete sent Tom there. Uh, I, I, the original report that Tom wrote on a typewriter was in 1984. And, you know, we, we're still looking at that, thinking about that, paying attention to it and trying to transfer, you know, that insight into the ground, even with what has been going on just last summer out there, which is really shows you the, the, the powerful nature of, of the words that, that Tom wrote and how much the club, you know, really pays attention to those too, which is pretty cool. Um, but you know, the, the one shot holes out there, there does seem to be a very significant sort of new focus on template holes and, you know, valuing them and, you know, which one is better and, you know, all the different things. But, you know, I think that, I, I don't know if it's a quote directly, but I know those one shot holes for Pete Dye really got his attention the first time he saw the place. And I think I could say, you know, the same for Tom in that context. And, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to see a lot of Rainer and McDonald golf uh, more Rainer, obviously, but as a package, those four holes at Camargo really exude the essence of those, those template holes. I mean, obviously Chicago golf club is right up there and you can go right down the line, but um, you know, they, they all get your attention and uh, you know, the version of them in scale and proportion is it's up there with his good uh, grouping of four one shot holes on a rain or golf course as, as I've ever seen. And it's, you know, those are the privileges that we get as a, yeah. you know, virtue of, of the clubs we're working at and, you know, and, and now with the Lido opening and, and, you know, it, there, there's a real focus on that really deliberate ge geometric, quite often daunting style of, of architecture right now. So it's, it's kind of fun to be around that. Cause I think people are paying historically more attention to architecture and everybody sort of the tendency as a human is to, is to gravitate towards the kind of stuff that you can believe to understand and want to study and template holes are, you know, those are a great place to start. Yeah. Although on a personal note, I, I think I would, would like to think that after the Lido, we can kind of put that to, to rest now, as far as building new ones. I mean, first, certainly right. that's a hard one to follow up. Um, but you know, they exist in a beautiful way. They are they are unique in golf course architecture. The architecture of McDonald and Rainer is very unique. But at this point, for architects to continue to to build copies of those holes, it almost seems like derivative. It, uh, I'd like to see um, there's enough of it out there, with the exception of if it was if it was like a, a really great public course to give public players more of an opportunity to experience it. I think that's mm -hmm. useful, but. Um, <laughs> get, get some fresh ideas, you know. Um, but going back to going back to Camargo and Shore Acres, does when when you're working with these clubs and you're trying to reestablish what was built there originally through mm -hmm. years of, of wear and, and and tree planting and just normal the normal course of a golf course aging, does does working with the architecture of, of, of Seth Rayner does it make it a little more straightforward? Uh, versus working with, uh, you know, on some other old course where maybe the documentation is as good or, or the architect didn't have such a defined style. You didn't know exactly what this hole was supposed to be, what the purpose of this hole was. 
Yeah, it, you know, initially, you know, the the knee jerk reaction is yes, it does, um, because it seems to you know the the pieces are are more discernible, if you will. But I, what I've found at at Camargo, um, and they embrace this at Shore Acres, but you know, at, at Camargo, I think you know the the hardest part, honestly, um, was the fact that you know, there is so much relief there. There's big tilt in the fairways and, you know, deciding where the fairway starts and the, the cut of rough begins on a big, long, bold slope is really difficult. Um, you know, it's just really difficult to do. Um, so, you know, the, the challenge that we had was trying to make that determination, you know, with, with bent grass, which, costs more money to maintain than than blue or rough grass and things like that and you know when the golf course was built that really wasn't a priority you just mowed and sorry about that we don't get many phone calls uh actual telephone calls anymore to the <laughs> land apparently today is a special day what's that noise uh, so like a ring. Uh, that was that was tough uh to try and decide you know, particularly in a in a crowned fairway like the 14th hole for there, for example, was 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 probably the biggest challenge. And, you know, to take the fairway down a slope and stop it before it gets to the bottom, when a lot of golf balls are likely to get there, compels you to go, OK, well, we need to take it down into the bottom of the swale. And then it needs to kind of go up the other side a little bit so that it it fits the scale of of the of the landform and the contour. But you know, when you measure how many acres of fairway that actually introduced, because now you're maintaining it as bent grass, it gets, it just, it's hard to justify. It becomes harder and harder to justify, even though that might've been where the original fairway was by just by, because of the fact that it wasn't irrigated full, you know, filled with um, inputs and, and, and uh, disease applications and all the things that we have to do now to keep bent grass behaving the way we think it should. Um, you know, you can't take that out as far as it was when the golf course was originally designed. And that was probably the heart, one of the hardest things. I mean, the greens are pretty straightforward, right? You go, you go to the precipice of the landform and, you know, that's, that's pretty straightforward stuff there, but you know, those fairways on some of those holes that are already big, they're already wide just because of the way that they have been maintained. But, you know, to, to go even wider, yeah. we had to try and figure out areas, maybe the start of a fairway that you just didn't need could be taken out of the equation to at least address the accounting for the, the bent grass acreage that you were starting to introduce. And then when we the, the new irrigation system is the driver on that because it's installed based on where the grassing lines are. So you're really, you're driving the bus on where the irrigation is going to go. And you don't want it, you want to build in as much flexibility as you can. But on the same token, you're kind of stuck with what you flag. And that was one of the bigger challenges out there. Because as you mentioned, Derek, it's just, it's just a big place, which is one of the things that makes it special. But by today's bent grass fairway standards um of irrigation and inputs it 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 made it really difficult to just go with your gut you had to you had to vet it almost 
to a degree and be willing to defend going big where you really felt like you needed to and try and justifying it. Talk about a little bit about what's happening with at Renaissance Golf these days. Um, I'm always a little confused. I, I, I know that there's been a change in partnership. I think you and, and Brian Slonick and Brian Schneider and uh, Eric Iverson are now the, the principals, or the, I'm not sure what the right terminology is, the owners, and, and Tom is, I don't know what his involvement is at this point. Can you, ex- can you explain it to me, what the, what the business model is now? Yeah, and, and you, you really, you've identified it correctly. It is the four of us that are co-owners. Um, we acquired Renaissance from Tom. It'll be uh, three years in January. Um, but we, you know, to, to any past or current or quite honestly, any future client where Tom is the architect of record, it's the way we go about building the golf course is not going to be in any way different. Um, you know, we, we still work the same way. We still have kind of the three pieces of what we do that we did when we were all together with Tom, you know, Tom's the architect of record. And then the four of us serve in the capacity of being what we call lead associate. So that one person that's on site, you know, the lion's share of the days of every month during construction, ensuring that Tom's ideas are, are realized in, to his satisfaction and in the way he envisions. And then also the day-to-day decisions on some of the smaller scale um, pieces of building a golf course. And then coupling that with being on the machines and shaping the greens for and with Tom. Um, you know, where are the bunkers going to go? What style are they going to have? How many are there going to be? And, you know, all those those things that just evolve in the process. And so to a, to a third party observer, if they hire Tom to build the golf course and we're fortunate enough to serve in those second and third capacities, we're doing it in the very same way. It's just, it's just more of an, an internal accounting exercise with the client that might look a little bit different, but they're, you know, the, the product's going to be the same. We really approach the construction of the golf course the very same way. And I think, you know, a couple of things that come to mind. One is Tom's tried really hard, and in, in to his credit, to sort of shine the light less on himself and more on the four of us in, you know, what we do, what our capabilities are, and, you know, to sort of deflect that kind of attention that comes with him. And we, the four of us have a golf course where we are the four architects of record, of record rather called Stoughton Bray in, in Southern Michigan. Um, and we're in the process of doing more of those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I, it, there's that point. And then the other part of it is, you know, we're all getting longer in the tooth. Uh, Tom and all four of us. And, and uh, you know, we sort of have that realization as much as we don't like to admit it. But I think, you know, Tom's in a position with this current uh, setup or structure or, or framework, if you will, that lets him do more of what just really is compelling to him and where he wants to do it and when and, and all of those kinds of things without the baggage that, for employees and their families and all that goes along with that would affect your decision making, you know, and, and I think it's freed him up in a way that he's getting, I hope, 
uh, is getting to do more of what, you know, he likes to do and more of what he really wants to do. Um, and it's, you know, he, he, he put the ball on the tee for us, you know, to, to make the transition. And, and, you know, when he finds something he wants to do, we have a dialogue with him and, and see, you know, what availability and capacity we have to, to help in those two areas that, that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, he's, he's finding all the really great stuff he always has. So we like to be involved with that, but we're in a position to the four of us consult and uh, establish new clients and continue traveling down the road with some existing like Camargo and in, in my case, for example, um, you know, that was Pete and then it was Tom and, and it's, it's been me now for a while. Um, but Tom doesn't need to be involved in the politic of, of that process anymore. Um, and I think that frees him up and it also translates to an opportunity for us. So, um, you know, I, I, it, 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 if I'm being, you know, really looking at it, we didn't make a big deal out of it because I don't think we felt like it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not as big as one of someone going, wow, they, they seem to have real momentum and now their, their structure is different. What happened? Well, n nothing really. Um, you know, the way we look at it, we're still happy to, to facilitate um, Tom's original work on sites that he is garnering and we're still doing that. And we're also doing some other stuff too. It's not, I don't want to say that, that Tom is in his like late period career. <laughs> he could, um, you know, he might be working for another 30 years for all we know. Um, right. But whatever you call it, he, he's definitely kind of entered a, a nice phase and the uptick in, in golf construction and interest has, has helped. And I know he's got a number of, of good projects, you know, all around the world, but even in the United States now, he's got, you know, Pinehurst number 10. I know you'll, mm -hmm. you'll all be starting the, the project in Texas pretty soon. Um, mm -hmm. Rolling Sands in Florida upcoming. Um, so it's, it is like a little, your company's called Renaissance, but there's even a kind of a career Renaissance happening right now for new construction with your business. I'd hope that a, a lot of that begins to roll down to the four of you. I know Brian Schneider has old Barnwell that's opening this fall. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what other new projects you have or you can announce, but um, ideally that some of those projects would, would start to come uh, the way of the four of you. Yeah, I, I think they will. And I think they are. Um, and, you know, we're just we're really lucky to be in a position now where we still have the advantage of working with Tom when it makes sense. And those projects are just you just those aren't the kinds of things you can pass on. Um, and but there is also more dialogue on new things and and really continuing from a consulting standpoint, too, which I think you know, as long as you're doing several things, you can react to the world when the, you know, the real estate market does what it did in 2008, you can kind of circle the wagons and, and maybe all four of us work on one project. Um, Cause we can, whereas now we're all working on four or more projects because we can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we learned that from Tom too. That's what happened at Pacific Dunes. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot going on when Pacific Dunes was under construction and a lot of us, spent a lot of time out there. Um, and so that made it that way. And you look at, um, 
you know, for example, uh, where the the U.S. amateur is this week at Cherry Hills in Denver, and where the women's amateur was last week at Bel Air. Yeah, those are both Renaissance golf um, projects. You know, where where Tom was the point, and and rightfully so. But Eric Iverson really served in the behind the scenes on the ground capacity at both of those places. So, you know, I think as more people learn that, that we've served in that capacity, hopefully there will still be enough projects out there where there's somebody who's got something interesting and, and fun and the timing works that they feel like they can trust us to do it. And they, you know, they don't, they don't need Tom. The fact that we've got the years of experience of working with him and bringing it to the table that, that, you know, that'll be good enough. And, and, um, you know, we can, we can work on a project together and, and try and discover ways to be clever and inventive and, and refreshing while still paying attention to all the stuff that we've learned over the years too. Um, I feel like I veered a little on that one. I was trying, I, I try and keep the question at hand in my mind when I'm answering, but sometimes I just go off on a tangent as I'm sure you've clearly noticed already. Digressions are good. That's what we, that's how <laughs> conversations go. But as, as we kind of like start to start to close out here, Don, um, I wanted to go back to, you know, the question of, you know, after all this time, do you have a better grasp or any grasp for what, what golfers like? And then you answered, one of the things that, that you brought up was, um, you think you know they they like variability they like a, a new experience whether they recognize it immediately or not and somebody asked me recently about what i thought made uh tom's courses so so well well received so good and, and his best ones and i always immediately go to pacific dunes and ballyneal those are two yeah. of my absolute favorite places to play um anywhere in the world and I like other courses as well, but just those two always have a special place in my heart. And I tried to say, well, you know, why, why is that? Uh, well, and I thought, well, what makes the, the courses, you know, the greens? Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I was with that. And then I thought, well, but also the routing, those routings are really good. And there's just something about being on those two po- properties in particular, the way it, the way that you get spun around and, and oriented and you're going in a different direction and you kind of get lost. And then you know, there's, there's, reveals and and so the the way the courses are routed is is really special but as i thought about it more and those things are true the greens and the routing are what you know tom does as well as anybody who's ever lived is the i think what it really was for me was that generally when you step on a tee there you don't know how to play the hole i mean if you play them over and over again you might but there's there's no roadmap there's no uh there's no instructions. I mean, they, they just like open fields. Like when you mm-hmm. stand on the third tee at, at Pacific dunes, like you don't know what to do. And, right. and, and that's, there's something that is so, especially like if you played them, like I did, you know, in their early two thousands, you know, when they, when they were young, younger courses, that was not a common experience in golf, unless you'd played a, a lot of golf in, in the UK. And, there's just something that that captures you know your imagination if you can stand on a tee and 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 be a little bit bewildered not just about the beauty of it but about how you're supposed to approach it and and have uncertainty and um and and just you know so much of golf up to that point had been you know you know here's hit it between the bunkers you know there's one shot you know you go to yeah. almost any golf course yeah. and it's just prescriptive golf and and that's great you know winged foot is kind of like that there are great courses that that can be that but 
and, and I know this is a long windup, but that to me what stood up and I think Tom really started to reintroduce that into the, into the golfing population. And then I, but and then I started to think about it because one of the things that I do is, is run our, our, uh, our panel, our course ranking panel. And we, you know, we have all of our rankings and we try to define greatness by through categories. And, and my question to you is what makes, what do you, in your mind, what makes a golf course special? Is, or great, if you want to use those words, versus just good or or admirable. Is it something that you can boil it down to to to, to one or two things? I kind of think that it may not fit in any of any certain category, but it's just that that not that uncertainty, that that bewilderment of not knowing exactly how to approach a hole that makes makes it interesting. But then there's also like a certain sense of place or an aura certain courses give. What what is it to you? What what makes certain golf courses special? I think you you've really alluded to it. You know, you you hope that tee to green, it's it's just got a lot of variety. And you know what makes it, if it you know I keep going back to fun I, without wearing that three letter word out. Mm-hmm. And part of that is when you hit a good shot you think is good and it doesn't turn out very well, or you hit a shot that you didn't hit very well and it turns out great. You know that that for me that's that's part of the game. And, you know, the, the course that just keeps coming back that I was so privileged to be intimately familiar with is North Berwick, um, in, uh, East Lothian, you know, just when we were doing, uh, the Renaissance club that hosts the Scottish open. Now we sat down, um, my colleague, Bruce Hepner at the time and I, and, and had a little meeting with the secretary at North Berwick and, and asked permission, you know, when the days are, in, in summer in Scotland, it's light at three 15 in the morning and it stays light till 11 15 at night. So we could work a full day on the project at um, the Renaissance club and get food and still have plenty of time to play 18 holes at, at North Berwick. It didn't leave a lot of time for sleep, but we were still young and able to run on fumes uh, more back then. But the, it, to, it, you know, the, the thing you mentioned that I'd, like to allude to is you know tee to green those that go- those golf holes are as varied and interesting as you're going to find anywhere for all the right reasons in my book but more than that it's what are you looking at while you're playing golf what are you looking at while you're leaning on your driver waiting for your adversary or your partner to hit their tee shot or 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 putt the ball or hit a recovery shot it's what do you smell what do you see What's, what does it feel like as you're looking around, as you take in the non-golf stuff and boy, pound for pound, I don't know if there's anywhere else in the world that compares to North Berwick for those reasons. You know, you're, you're playing out of this charming, charming little town has, has an awesome 18 hole putting course for anybody from zero to 99 to enjoy any day of the year that they want to. And you're, you're seeing them do that. Um, And, you know, all the, Bass Rock and, and Inch Keith and all the islands off the coast. And, and, you know, one of my favorite things about North Berwick is that it's sort of an out and turn around and come back golf course. And when you play in the evening, the light is long and low and the shadows are, are long and the, the light is warm and every hole is backlit like a Christmas tree all the way home. You know, every, you, you can't look anywhere without going, boy, the light's good for a photo there. The light's good for yeah. a photo there. And it's every look for hole after hole after hole. So 
it, you know, it, it's those kinds of things for me that, that make a golf course great. And, 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 you know, it does not have any of the logistical or physical ingredients that say, wow, that'd be a great course for a U.S. amateur, or that would be, <laughs> you know, that would be such a good U.S. open course. The best players in the world would be challenged there. No problem. It's, it couldn't be any further from that. Um, and, you know, great has many definitions and, and, you know, that's why, um, you know, trying to rank golf courses is just so interesting. You're always going to be challenged, but because it's really, really, really hard to come up with a metric or a set of metrics that, that translates directly to what everyone's version of great is. And, you know, my version of great is North Barrick. It doesn't mean I don't like Oakmont, you, you know, um, that's not it at all. It's just, you know, for, for my money, it's, it's just that kind of thing. And it, and it's just so fun. It's so much fun. Um, and it's playable and manageable for everybody. And that's, that's golf in the UK by and large. Yeah. And it's also, I'm just that the ways that you describe North Berwick, which is very beautiful. I'm not sure that you, those things can be consciously designed or considered Right, you know, they just happen to exist in certain places, and I guess that's that's what confuses me too. Not confuses, but it's just you know, the older that I get and the more I play, the more I have an appreciation for some things just are the way they are, and that some places yeah. just hit you differently, and they hit other people differently too. Like you know, like I I I had, I really love Los Angeles Country Club, but I love mm. Riviera. You know, uh-huh. I I, yeah. I like Marion, I admire it, but it when sure. I go to a place like Old Sandwich, just like my heart explodes and same with like yeah. Pacific. I like Bannon dunes, but Pacific dunes is, is my soulmate. So it's just, and these are just the things that, that, uh, you know, exist out there and it's, and that's the beauty of, of golf and, and even, you know, rankings can never quite capture that. I mean, that's why you could, everybody has their own, their own perspective on it. You know, that's why, right. that's why we talk about it. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you, you, all you can do is, is state your case and, and, and argue it to the best of your ability. But as you know, and as long as we never land on the perfect metric for making that determination, I think that's, that's good for the game. You yeah, know, and it, you shouldn't it, care if, if nobody agrees with you, it doesn't matter. That's you know, right. It's not going right. to change your opinion of North Berwick and how you feel about it. That is a fact. Yeah, that is a fact. And, Are there and, other courses that you can think of that, that hit you similarly, maybe not as strongly, but similarly just in your heart? That, um, the nine hole course that I grew up on in McCook, Nebraska does. Um, and it, it is, it's, it's nothing burger. I mean, there is nothing special about it other than hitting the golf ball, you know, and it, and that's where I learned to hit, hit the golf ball. And, uh, you know, I think that's the thing that might be an intrinsic part of what's the kind of the uptick in golf popularity now is, you know, we've, golf is fun. Golf is cool. You know, you, you can, you can make that case till the cows come home. It's like telling somebody to, you know, wow, riding a bike is just really cool. And and you try and describe it and things like that. But until you've been up on two wheels and, and pedaled it for yourself, you don't know until you know, and, and, you know, I grew up fishing and it's the same thing until you hold a pole with a bobber and, and watch the bobber go down and, and feel what it feels like in your hands to have a fish on. That's what hitting the golf ball really well for the first time just feels like. And, you know, the way to get people to experience that is, 
is, you know, you can do it in a whole myriad of ways. I think that's what's exciting about short courses now that are starting to be, you know, we've been professing this for decades, you know, short courses, introducing to people, making the game sustainable and approachable and all the things. And now they're doing it and people are getting that fish on feeling and, and they are saying, yeah, th- this is really cool. And it's, and it's fun. And I don't even have to be good at it to enjoy it. You know, you figure out ways to enjoy it like playing sandlot baseball with three players, you know, you don't have the official roster and you don't have enough for everybody to play every position, but you don't need it. You can still make it fun. And that's one thing that's really exciting to me. And I hope that for whatever reason, this vector is on the the angle that it is, that it stays there long enough to get enough people in that it, it doesn't flatten you can't expect it to keep going in perpetuity, but the idea of moving everything up and keeping it up at that level is is exciting. And it, I, I hope we do a good enough job in the game, whether you're an architect or a teaching pro or you're a kid picking the range, you know, talking about the merits of how great the game is and continuing to, you know, tell anybody that'll listen that it's it's something special. You mentioned a few times the the more the, the heightened attention that's being paid over the last five or six years to golf course architecture, which is very uh, very encouraging and interesting. It, it comes with its own set of issues as well, but but that, uh, there definitely seems with within that a more of, uh, of the spirit of the times seems to be more toward an appreciation for diversity and, and playability versus that old you know whatever the old uh, thing that it replaced was that the concept of hard is good or or championship quote-unquote championship style of golf um and that's where i that's where i hope the focus stays is is in the, on that concept of, of playability and and curiosity mm-hmm. in, indeed I, I think there's a real short anecdote i have about a theory on why short courses seem to be gaining popularity i, mm-hmm. I think it wasn't because the people that could enjoy it the most were listening to somebody telling them that it can be. It sort of came in the back door with, you know, as golf got popular and the idea of a golf trip with four or eight or 12 or 16 people became popular. You know, if you have the means to do that, you may not be playing a ton of golf throughout the year, but you got this big golf focus so you go and you, we're going to play 36 holes on, on Thursday and then we're going to play 36 on Friday and we're just going to golf our brains out. Well, I think what happened is that, you know, most people that play that much golf in a short period of time that don't do that normally, they get golf fatigue. Their hands hurt, you know, their, their feet are sore, even their most comfortable golf shoes, you know, their shin splints are kicking in. And so the idea of this short course available you know, in the evening where you put your, your tennis shoes on or your flip flops or even play barefoot, um, becomes this thing. And and once you do that, once you're way ready, more ready to play 18 the next day than you would if you just played 36. And on top of that, you probably laughed your tail off with your golf companions, made wagers, hit shots. You never would have tried before, you know, all the things and it, and it makes golf fun. And, and, you know, I think that I hope very much that that can breach the wall that keeps, you know, 
golf in the container that it's in and gets out there to where people will do that and, and have fun. And, and, and because I think once you do that, you can hook people. And if you can't start hooking people on golf, it's a hard, you know, takes time. It's by and large expensive, all the things. So if you can get more people to in that position that have never tried it before to, to see what that feels like and that it's fun. I mean, that would be great. My wife, Elizabeth and I do that as much as we can. And she just uses emojis on her scorecard. She, she didn't care. You know, if you hit, if you make an actual good score on a hole, maybe we'll write down the number, but you know, it's a, it's a, um, a smile face or a frown or a, a frazzled, confused look because you just don't know what happened on that hole. And, and you just go on to the next one. And I think at the core, you know, that's, that's at the core. That's the start of what match play is. You can forget about a bad hole and go on to the next one. And, and uh, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, the, 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 the virtues of match play versus metal play, but um, you know, golf really is fun it, and, and it can be if we let it. That's really well said. Don, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I will finish on, on this last question. I always end, end on this one. What is your favorite modern golf course that you are not involved or, or Tom was not involved in building? Hmm. Favorite modern. This is so you, you can't just go back to North Berwick or Camargo. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think it's no, it's certainly uh, no surprise that one of the, the, the folks that, uh, design teams I have the most respect for and everybody that's worked for them are Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw. Um, and I think, you know, we don't approach things the same way, but we're probably largely the most similar of any two groups working right now. Um, and I, I haven't had the pleasure of playing um, a great deal of, of Gil Hans's work, um, but I've played a lot more of Bill and Ben's and, and, uh, they have a way of just finding the most elegant presentation that a, that a property has to offer. And they're, they're really good at that. And, and the parts that are, you know, there, they, they accentuate and maximize. And then in the areas where there maybe isn't so much of that, they find a way. And, you know, it's, golf is so much more than hitting the ball. And I, I think they, they do, what they do in a way that makes it just really easy on the eyes. You know, it's just, it's just a pleasure to look at, even if you're hitting it short or sideways, which, you know, that's largely my game. Um, I still enjoy being on, on their golf courses. I was lucky enough uh, when I was in Colorado uh, and living and working in Denver to be able to get to the sand Hills pretty early in the game. And, you know, that, that just changes you that you can't look at golf architecture the same way after you've experienced that. And, and um, I, I was able to see Prairie Dunes on that same loop, uh, which had the same effect for different reasons. And that's not a modern golf course, but I, you know, I just, I have so much respect for Bill and Ben and, and how they do things. And in the occasions I've been able to spend time with them and, and actually work with them, uh, I've been lucky enough to do both. They, they, they make, they don't, they don't discount the real important integral virtues of golf and the traditions of golf and the history of golf at all. 
but they do it in a way that's so comfortably casual and you, you just can't help but feel comfortable around both of them. They just make you feel that way. Um, and when you combine those two things together, you've really got, you got a, you got a recipe that it's a cake, that's a cake you want to make. One of the reasons Don Plasek and his partners at Renaissance Golf Design have transitioned so seamlessly into their ownership roles is because Renaissance has always been an idea and never just Tom Doak golf design. The idea that's always motivated Doak and Renaissance is that great and enjoyable courses are that way because the land and setting were interesting, moving, and that good golf design didn't need to be expensive or elaborately conceived. That idea that great golf design comes from the ground up and is based on restraint rather than excess or elaborate architectural orchestration and concepts was fairly radical in the 1980s and continues to be an elusive target. But it's an outlook and conviction that can be passed down to believers from associates like Hans, DeVries, Hepner, and Urbina to Don Plasek, Eric Iverson, Brian Slonick, and Brian Schneider, and then on to those that work with and for them. Doak's clients have by and large bought into not just him, but this idea that he's put forth in a way that's different from the reasons that other clients bought into the name and likeness of Tom Fazio, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Greg Norman, and most other designers whose firms will be on far less certain ground once they've moved on. The idea of Renaissance is perpetual, and like Corn Crenshaw in particular, the key is that it's always been grounded in the methodology of building courses rather than trying to produce an imagined finished vision. I think Don explained that rather well, and we'll look forward to where he and his Renaissance colleagues go next. The next few years should be very good to them and to Doak, and to those of us who love their work. So thanks to Don Plasek for joining me. Thanks to you all for listening. Please rate, review, and leave a comment about Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts. I love hearing what you think of the show. And I'm on social media, at Feed the Ball, and in Golf Digest every issue, and on GolfDigest.com. Thanks to the Sundogs for the opening music. And until we get to do this again, adios.